Your getaway with Apple Vacations begins the moment you step on board one of our exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Escape the ordinary with packages starting at just $599. No layovers, just pure relaxation from takeoff to touchdown. Immerse yourself in the joy of travel with Apple Vacations. Your journey is as enchanting as the destination. So pack your bags and leave the rest to us. Visit AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to book your vacation. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Digital trends show up every day in business decisions and actions. West Monroe is the number one strategic partner translating technology into financial value for companies. The This Is Digital podcast applies West Monroe's two decades of secrets and best practices to your business's benefit. Favorite past topics from the last three seasons include how AI and the next generation of employees are shaping the workplace, becoming a product company, Highmark's journey, and what does it mean to put the customer first. Learn more at westmonroe.com. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says the seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Joe McCormick and our other host, Lauren Vogelbaum, is not with us today, but she will be joining us again next week yeah hopefully my brain will also be joining us next week where is it right now i tell you my brain is uh it's under the sea buddy it's uh under the sea down where it's wetter yeah or at least i've heard it's wetter. Th- yeah. i've actually never been under the sea what well i've swam in the sea i guess i've like dunked my head on <laughs> okay but- <laughs> i was about to say like how have you managed to do that no i mean i've never been to the bottom of the ocean well i mean Depends on what part of the ocean you're talking about, too, right? Because when you're wading in, your feet are on the sand, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but not you don't mean to any significant yes, depth. Yes. Actually, I am an aquanaut because <laughs> I went to the beach one time. We're going to talk about aquanauts today. And uh, aquanauts are uh, they're, they're people working with NASA to develop technologies and processes and uh, various strategies for Dealing with deep space situations and, and tech and tools, but 
we have to be able to do it here on Earth because, you know, if you want to test something to make sure that it can withstand the rigors of space or that it needs to, uh, you, that, that it needs to be useful within a space environment, it's pretty tricky to do here on Earth. Yeah, that's the thing we've actually talked about a bunch of times before in, in various ways. It turns out to be very difficult to simulate space on Earth yeah. cheaply and safely. Yeah, I, you've got you know we've got lots of different uh, environments that various uh, that NASA uses in various uh, simulations of space environments. Things sure, that like you know, Mars colonists uh, pretending to be Mars colonists out in the middle of the desert somewhere, right, or Antarctica or something like that. But where, still, they've got Earth gravity, they've got air. Yeah, you know. yeah. If they were to take their helmet off, they would not suddenly you know turn go- into Ronnie Cox at exactly. the end of Total Recall. Right. They would. They would not do that. So there's. There's also another way of simulating a space environment that does bring into account some of those issues that you would encounter actually out in space, and that would be doing this underwater. Uh, underwater has several of the aspects of space. For one, we obviously need equipment so that we can continue to breathe while we're there. Yeah. And we can't just remove a helmet and be perfectly fine. Right. So we have to we have to sort of like practice donning the EVA suit mm-hmm. and uh and dealing with that. It has unusual pressure conditions, though I'd say actually going in the opposite direction from what we'd be dealing with in most of our environments we'd be going into in space. So like if you go to the the moon or a spacewalk or the surface of Mars, you're going to be dealing with an unusually low pressure environment. Uh Dealing with the bottom of the ocean is an unusually high-pressure environment, but still you're dealing with different pressure conditions. Well, and also you have buoyancy. Yeah, yeah. And buoyancy can help uh, simulate a low-gravity environment. Yeah. So whether you're – you know, you can add some weight to your, your suit, which will allow you to simulate different uh, low-gravity environments. In fact, NASA does this all the time. And they do this through a program called NEMO. N-E-E-M-O. So this is going to be the main focus of today's podcast. Yeah. We're going to be looking at the NEMO program and what it does and, you know, how it works. Jonathan, Um, what does NEMO stand for? You know, it stands for truth and it stands for (laughs) science. And and the American way. American way. It stands for NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. Okay. So, um, yeah, this is all about using the undersea environment to simulate space in various ways. And uh, it's pretty cool what they do and how they do it and where they do it. Uh, And it's it's a clever engineering way to say, well, how can we test out these things here on Earth? We're not spending money and potentially putting people's lives at risk out in space where we don't know for sure this is going to work. How can we be reasonably sure it works by – simulating it here and uh, it's pretty so, cool based on the name i'm going to guess that they operate out of a globe trotting uh, giant underwater submarine that is disguised to look like a narwhal uh, or either that or they you know are constantly being uh, berated by an overly anxious father <laughs> <laughs> you can't go out there nemo that's the ocean no uh neither of those things are true it is in fact takes place at a laboratory an undersea laboratory oh well, that's pretty cool called aquarius now uh i i'm fairly certain that we at least alluded to aquarius when we talked about underwater hotels yes uh so 
underwater hotels, we, we've talked about how there are only a couple of those that exist and they are very limited. They're, it's like a one, it's like a one room thing. Mm-hmm. In one case, it was a underwater observatory meant for divers that wasn't intended to be an underwater hotel, but had been repurposed as one. Uh, you've definitely talked about Aquarius on tech stuff. Yeah. I think I've heard you talk about yeah, it. Yeah. So Aquarius is the underwater facility that at one point, um, was located off the coast of the U.S. Virgin Islands. That's originally where it was when it was uh, built back in 1983, and it was originally called the George F. Bond. Uh, Bond was a physician and saturation diver. Saturation divers, that's where you are diving to a point where uh, you're the the oxygen in your blood all gets dissolved, and then you can hang out in a pressurized um environment that's at the same pressure as the ambient pressure of the water around you and you just you hang out you do science you observe stuff and it means you can also go in and out of the water without any sort of uh, decompression because you are already at the that ambient pressure you you have uh, uh, become um, you have adapted to it however yeah. if you want to go back up to the surface you've got to go through decompression before you can do it or else you will get the so I understand that this guy studied how pressure affects the human body. Yeah, he was actually a physician and a diver, and uh, he was a specialist in undersea and hyperbaric medicine and um, passed away uh, in 1983. So this facility, when it was at the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, it suffered some damage. Mostly it was – well, for one thing, there's just wear and tear where stuff grows on it and everything and – you know, yeah. If you ever seen one of these underwater like labs or facilities, they they look like heck. They are just yeah. covered with junk and barnacles and stuff. Yeah, it doesn't look like some sort of pristine like super villain lair or something like that. Yeah, it's I guess a little it, gnarly. It, it's hard to clean the exterior of an underwater habitat, and you might not even want to, right? right. Like you might be you might be wanting it to to you know not interfere with the various biome as much as possible. But anyway, uh, it was damaged in 1989 because of Hurricane Hugo. It moved through the area and uh, caused some damage to the facility. So it was airlifted out. It was actually you know, detached and uh, sent off to Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, where it was refurbished and redeployed, but this time off the coast of Key Largo in the Florida Keys. So that's huh. where it is now. Well, wait. Now, is this a hotel these days primarily, or do they use it for science? This one's used for science. Okay. This is a science <laughs> one. Uh, not the same one as the one that was <laughs> used as a hotel. So this one was, until fairly recently, it was uh, owned by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. And uh, specifically, NOAA had the National Undersea Research Program as the administrator. Uh, administrator for the lab. But in 2013, NOAA decided to sell the uh, Aquarius Laboratory. And in fact, there was a there was a time where people were worried that it would mean that the the scientific endeavors would come to an end because NASA is just one entity that uses this undersea laboratory. It's used for all sorts of stuff from studying climate change, biology experiments, diving and medicine experiments. And also NASA uses it for the simulations of space. So it's used for lots of stuff. Fortunately, the Florida International University took ownership of the laboratory in 2013. So they'll rent it out to NASA when oh, yeah. they need they, to do their NEMO stuff. They allow NASA to continue to do their NEMO projects. Uh, so I wonder, uh, what's it like inside? Uh, it's cozy. Uh, first of all, <laughs> first of all, to get there, 
you have to swim down to reach the actual facility. You're swimming down around 47 feet, which is about 14 meters. Uh, that is not the bottom of the ocean. That's not the ocean floor there. The ocean floor is actually further down. It's at 62 feet below the surface or just under 19 meters down. Uh, that's where the base plate is. So you can think of the base plate as being kind of the anchor point. Yeah. Uh, and then the facility itself is on some struts. Uh, and it, there is actually a, a, an area called, um, a wet porch, which is, or, or also known as the, um, the moon pool. The moon pool is an opening inside the floor of the facility, uh, and you just pop up through that. And because the facility itself is pressurized at the ambient pressure of the ocean, you can just go from underneath, you, you pop under this one divide, right. go up through the moon pool, and then you're inside the facility. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. You don't even need a door. Nope. But because of the pressure conditions. Yeah, the pressure yeah. keeps the water out. It's just like if you were to turn a bucket upside down and put it down into the water the air is going to keep the water from coming into the bucket, yeah. right? So it Same seems thing. like it'd be really unfortunate if the facility got turned upside down. That would not be good. No. Yeah, there there are many things that would be not good if you were in this facility. Like, structural weakness would be not right. good, too. Or if you lost the connection through your life support buoy. Yeah, because this is not a... a the, the lab doesn't receive electricity through an onboard generator. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't have just oxygen tanks supplying the oxygen. It's, it's connected. got an umbilical cord, yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's got an umbilical cord that connects to a, a buoy that floats on the surface. And it's through that that it receives electricity and oxygen so that uh, the people down below uh, will be able to survive. Obviously, that is an important part of doing science is the surviving part. Otherwise, it's hard to continuously make observations and test them. Uh, it's right next to a coral reef. And the science projects performed there can sometimes uh, involve things like studying coral reef life cycles, if it, not the NASA ones, but the other projects that happen at, in there. Uh, as for the facility itself, if you went inside of it, uh, you would have about 400 square feet or 37 square meters of space to wander around. Um, the, the, the wet porch area is actually at, an add-on to the, um, to the facility. It's kind of bolted on. It's a squared off area that's bolted onto the end of this almost, it almost looks like a, 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 a pill, like a, a gel cap style pill. Uh-huh. It kind of looks like that in shape. It's almost cylindrical. Uh, and part of that is because that curved wall structure is very sound and helps uh, distribute the pressure from the water so that you don't have these structural weakness points, right? So yeah. It just makes sense. So, uh, the main entry is through that wet porch. There's also a hatch as well in case they need it. But <laughs> also, <laughs> hopefully, you don't need it. Also, that's important for uh, decompression. You know, they have to be able to to if they need to go back to the service, they have to go through. I think it's 16 hours of decompression before oh, they can leave. Man. Yeah, because otherwise, you get the bends. Hopefully, you can read. Yeah, I'm sure you can. Uh, they, they were they were talking about like I actually watched no, videos. They, in, they insist you be bored. Right. It's part of the training. It's like 16 hours. Like you get a ball in a cup. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, the ball is attached to a string. The strings attached to a cup. Space is boring. Cup. You've got to prepare. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they actually uh, I, I watched videos of some of the guys who were down there for one of the previous Nemo projects. By the way, the reason why we're even talking about this is on July 20th, 2015. 
the 20th Nemo project takes place, starts on July 20th. But that means there have been 19 other ones. And actually it was Nemo 19 that I saw uh, videos from that, that crew. One of the members of the crew took a whole series of videos, and they are awesome. They are great. They show you around the facility. They talk about the science they perform and the, the experiments they're doing to test space uh, procedures and tools. And it's really interesting to get you know an inside look at this. But it is really tiny. There yeah. are six bunks, so only six people can stay down here uh, at a time. And they may stay up there for up to three weeks in a go. So three weeks of being down in this little can with five other people, and you can't go up to the surface unless you first go through 16 hours of decompression. Uh, that sense of isolation is an important part of what they're doing, because when you're in space, you are also isolated. Yeah. So this it, it's not just about testing the equipment and the processes and the tools, but human psychology. Right. To test, you know, is this something we should consider doing? Because look at the stress it puts on people. And what are the best ways of dealing with that stress? And are there ways that can help decrease it so that this sense of isolation isn't overpowering or causing anxiety? Uh, really interesting stuff. Um, and uh, you also have windows so you can actually see outside and see the little fishies swim by. Oh, not the operating system. No, you don't. I mean, you could have a computer that's running on windows. But no, I mean that the actual facility itself has uh, portals. That you can look through and see the beauteous fishies as they swim by and possibly sing Disney tunes to you if you have ocean madness. Just <laughs> 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 kind of like space madness, but it's underwater. Uh, so that's under- the kind of madness you have to wait 16 hours to escape right, from. Exactly. <laughs> Which I've. It sounds like some of the flights I've taken in the past. Yeah. Uh, the undersea environment does serve as an analog for space. Like we said, it's a hostile environment. So just like space, you have to have protective gear on in order to survive. You've um, got to psychologically get used to the hostile environment. Right. Yeah, that's very important. Just as the isolation is a factor, so is the factor of you've got to get used to the fact that you are in a place where without your equipment working properly, you will die. Yeah. Yeah, that's – I mean, that's – Something that you have to be able to deal with, obviously. Uh, navigating underwater is not easy, nor is traveling around in space. They've talked about how sometimes you encounter a current that's so strong that it's like walking against a really powerful wind, which could potentially be something that you would encounter on an alien world, depending upon where you're going. Um, they also say that, uh, you know, they want to test the you know basic tasks that would be really simple on a normal planet right like like let's say we're on earth because we are and we wanted to dig a hole give me a shovel i can dig a hole assuming that the ground's not so hard that i can't that the <laughs> shovel won't penetrate it actually i kind of doubt your hole digging abilities jonathan you know what we'll test that after this episode but uh <laughs> you know, give me a shovel and are a you threatening patch of to kill me i can't tell i'm not threatening to kill you uh, <laughs> so so at any rate uh you know it may it, something that might be easy on the surface of earth could be incredibly difficult yeah. in other situations so uh for example if you're on a a low gravity environment how hard would it be to get a core a soil sample not a coral sample but a soil sample from uh, that planet which would be a typical science experiment that you would expect astronauts to do on a different planet, like on Mars. So they've tested this by giving uh, an aquanaut, which is what they call the 
the crew that goes down to Aquarius to test this kind of stuff. Uh, they give an Aquanaut a shovel. They weight the Aquanaut down to the appropriate level that will simulate the, the amount of gravity they would experience on whatever destination they have in mind and say, all right, here's the location you need to go to. We need a soil sample from that location using this shovel as your tool. And then they observe to see, does it work? Is it hard? How difficult is it? Is there some way of making that easier for people when they do go to Mars so that they're able to perform the science without it being, you know, with, despite the tools instead of because of the tools. They want to make sure that the tools are useful and not an impediment. Yeah, and I'm sure it's got to be similar to extravehicular activity in space and that you're dealing with, like, hard time limits and stuff. Absolutely, yeah. You you are only able to stay out there as long as your oxygen, right? Supply is able to give you oxygen. So the people who are on these EVAs, the extravehicular activities, the same thing that they call them out in space, they refer to anything that requires you to go outside of the Aquarius laboratory as an EVA. And there could be dozens of them within a, a span of a full Nemo project. Like uh, the one I looked at for Nemo, I think it was 15 or 16. There were like 22 EVAs planned over the course of it. And that's a lot. Uh, but you are limited by the amount of oxygen that you have with you, just as you would be in space. Uh, you know, sometimes you might have an umbilical cord attaching you back to the, um, to the, to the laboratory, just as you could have a spacecraft that had that same sort of feature to it. But even so, you're still limited. So, uh, that's important. Uh, and it's built in so that when these, these tasks are transferred from the undersea environment out into space, NASA can be reasonably sure that the astronauts will be able to complete them in the time necessary to do so. If yeah. it takes too long to do, then it needs to either be redesigned or abandoned. Yeah, that's crazy. It's something that I think most people have never even thought about when it comes to space missions. Just like, how do you estimate how long it's going to take to do something in space? And and we're talking about everything from complex maneuvers. Like, they, they have... Uh, you know, they have essentially the equivalent of the jetpacks that that astronauts would use in space to move around, but they have the water version. <laughs> like everything from something as complex as that to something as simple as moving through a hatch, just mm-hmm. to test to make sure that the suits, which are designed to be as close to spacesuit technology as possible, uh, and the hatch itself are designed in such a way that the astronauts can easily move through them. Uh, obviously, if they can't, then that's a problem. Something needs to be redesigned, either on the suit or on the hatch or both. And that's why they have these really extensive tests. It's to test everything from the, the people to the equipment to the actual methodology they're using. One other thing that happens in space is that, you know, the further away from Earth get, the longer it takes for messages to get from Earth to you and from you back to Earth. Mm-hmm. Right. We saw this with the Curiosity rover landing. Uh, we people talked about how the rover had been on the surface of Mars for several minutes, but we didn't know if it had landed successfully. So while we're waiting to find out, it was already happily sitting, not happily because it didn't have emotions, but it was sitting there safely on the surface of the planet. But we had no way of knowing because it took time for the information to travel from Mars to get to Earth. It could yeah. only travel the speed of light. So and while I say only and the speed of light is the fastest thing in the universe – that's still a limiting factor. And so in order to simulate that, NASA puts in essentially artificial delays in communications 
and builds that into the various missions. So if people aboard the Aquarius uh, lab need to talk to mission control, there's a delay. And there's a delay in the message coming back. It teaches people to be very concise and very specific (laughs) when they are communicating because if what they're saying is not clear, they have to wait sometimes up to 20 minutes for them to receive the message saying, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. And then you have to do it again. Yeah. And keeping in mind that the other people are waiting 10 minutes from when they said it before it gets to you and then another 10 minutes for your reply to come back. It's very it, – it indicates the need for clear, concise communication. And it teaches like NASA how to make these – sort of communications more effective. <laughs> you know, that that's a class they should teach in college. They've got technical writing, business writing, uh, creative writing, but they don't have uh, communications styled for interplanetary radio transmissions. Right. Obviously, I would fail that course. <laughs> I'm a little, I'm a little, <laughs> a little loquacious. Uh, so the very first NEMO project began on October 21st, 2001, and like I said, we're moving up on Nemo 20 now. So, uh, you know, was it like being there? If you watch those videos, you'll get a good feel for it. But like I said, it's tight quarters. You got six bunks. They're stationed at one end of the Aquarius lab. Um, and you might have somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 different EVAs planned for the duration of your mission there, depending on, and that could last as long as three weeks. Uh, you would end up testing out lots of different variations of the same stuff because really you're trying to gather as much information as possible about things that will potentially be used in space. So there have been NEMO missions where really it's been all about testing the same spacesuit in slightly different configurations to find out which one is the best one in under various circumstances. Well, I mean, that's important. It is. It, it sounds incredibly tedious and it, I mean, Granted, you're underwater. Like, you're surrounded by, by, uh, amazing marine life because you're not that far off the coast of Key Largo. It's not like you're in a desolate ocean environment. Right. So I'm sure there's lots of stuff to <laughs> be like, ooh, that's awesome. Oh, it's Cthulhu. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. Like, oh, really? It's right down the street. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's more about like, uh, you know, you try out your spacesuit in one configuration. And then you try it on a different one, see if that makes any difference. Try it on a different one, see if that makes any difference. Then you do it with different weights because that's to simulate (laughs) different gravity. And it may be that a spacesuit for the moon is not as ideal on Mars, right? You might find that one design works really well for moon gravity, which is one-sixth of the Earth's gravity. And others might be uh, better for Mars, which I think is one-third, if I'm not mistaken, of Earth's gravity. And so it's really important that you test out all these different variations, right? Um, so once you've, you know, that's just one part of it, obviously. There's the communications part that I talked about, the isolation part. Uh, and, and these mundane tests are really critical because you want to make absolutely certain that every decision you make when you're sending people out on a space mission, particularly something like going to Mars, that every decision made is going to is not going to to uh, endanger the success of the mission and the safety of the crew. Yeah. So things that like a hatch shape or size, they want to make sure that it's it's economically uh wise. You know, they don't want to they don't want to make 
a giant three-pronged space door <laughs> where you could drive a Humvee through it because you need to have one astronaut go through. But at the same time, you don't want it to be small where your suit is catching on it when you're trying to get through or yeah. shaped in a weird way. So these tests are, while they're mundane, are really important. Uh, also, there's a thing called the center of gravity rig, which is a fancy way of saying a backpack where you could put weights in different parts of the backpack to change the center of gravity of an aquanaut. Um, and that helps NASA design spacesuit equipment that's both useful and safe by, you know, checking to see how this affects an aquanaut's ability to walk around on the surface of the, the ocean floor. Uh, and uh, while we are looking a lot at spacesuits and vehicle designs, that that's a big part of what NEMO programs are all about testing is, you know, can, can you get in and out of a vehicle effectively wearing this suit? Uh, obviously, finding out that it's not easy to do when you're on the surface of Mars is a little too late. Yeah. Right? So you want to be able to test that out, both the suit and the vehicle configuration to make sure that that it all works together. Um or you might want to just test how well you can maneuver and interact with different environments while wearing that spacesuit. This is similar to that idea of taking the shovel and trying to dig with it. Does the spacesuit get in the way? Does Is the shovel designed properly? Is there something else that needs to happen in order for this to be as easy as possible given the conditions that you have to work within? So it's actually a pretty huge challenge. Uh, so what specifically is going on at this year's NEMO? All right. Well, it's going to be a 14-day mission starting on July 20th, as I said. And the main purpose is to test the tools and techniques that could be used by astronauts who are visiting Mars. So really? Yeah, specifically looking at, at a potential – like if we are to send people to Mars – what are the best practices that we need to follow? And this is NASA doing yeah. this. NASA. And, That's kind of surprising because I I don't know. I haven't gotten a lot of uh, uh, we're definitely sending people to Mars vibes from NASA. Well, lately. there's been there's been talk about it for, you know, for more than a decade. There's been well, really, there's more for more than several decades. There's been talk of it, but there's been serious talk for more than a decade about about pursuing it. And uh, it kind of. We have to keep in mind that Comes NASA and goes. Well, yeah, and there are different departments within NASA, right? So yeah. it's you know saying that NASA says blah 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 is a little misleading because it's like saying the U.S. government says right. It may be in a, a single official who has no backing with anybody else. <laughs> it's possible that that happens, uh, but this is a case where NASA is also working with the European Space Agency to test a lot of different equipment. Well, that's uh, cool and. Uh, it's so millennial because <laughs> it's all wearable computers. It's all things like <laughs> like heads-up displays, uh, tablets or smartphones. So you're seeing things like um, a, sp- a, a spacesuit designed to go underwater right now that has uh, a tablet or smartphone type of device on one wrist so that – A uh, Pip-Boy. Yes, essentially a Pip-Boy. That's a good example. Uh, or a heads-up display, which, by the way, at least for Nemo 19, I don't know if this is the case for 20. Nemo 19, the heads-up display, Google Glass. <laughs> it was a pair of Google Glass. But the idea being that it would give Aquanauts the ability to look at a series of steps without taking their eyes off the task at hand. So for an astronaut, you could understand this would be incredibly useful. It's kind of like thinking about the hollow lens, right, that you would be – 
in a space environment, you're doing something important. I don't know. Maybe you're setting down a drill so that you can put a nuclear bomb in this giant asteroid that's heading toward Earth. And that way it has the list of instructions right in front of you so you don't have to look away from the big drill that's drilling down. And, uh, yeah. It would really make Bruce Willis's job much easier. That's what I'm saying. Uh, maybe it could show you the lyrics to leaving on a jet plane so that way you don't <laughs> screw it up. Uh, if I'm going to continue the Armageddon references, that, by the way, is the extent of my Armageddon knowledge because I've never actually seen that movie. Oh, you haven't? No, I have not. Well, uh, if you've ever got like 347 minutes to spend, <laughs> however long it is. <laughs> if I just want to make my life seem that much longer by watching something I'm clearly not going to enjoy. Yeah. Uh, so... This is really cool, though, the idea that they'll be able to use this technology. And the reason why I say it's kind of the millennial approach is that they're going to be using testing a lot of different apps as well Yeah, to see which ones are going to make potentially make the missions more easy to um, more easy, easier to complete. Sure, um, because, I mean, when you're going to space, you need to consider the effectiveness, not just of hardware, but of software. Right. I mean, you know, what if you're on that asteroid and you want to play Angry Birds? You're going to. Especially the Star Wars edition, which would be really apropos. Uh, no, but seriously, yeah, you want to be able to make sure the software is going to be useful. It's not just going to be like, oh, you can do it this way. You want it to make sense. You want it to be intuitive. You want it to uh, be reliable. Right. And it's also going Why to – Why is my spacesuit running OS2 warp? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also supposed to uh, stay in contact with other parts of the mission – and it incorporates those communication delays we talked about earlier. So when one person is using their uh, equipment underwater and they're requesting guidance from mission control, there's going to be that delay because just as there would be if you were in space and you were really far away from Earth, uh, you can't expect an answer to pop up immediately. So it's to test that as well to make sure that this stuff is still useful, even given the – the uh, the restriction of a communications delay. Communications delays are also very useful in that it teaches how to improvise, right? Like you might, you might have a problem that you have to address that you need some guidance on. You can do some, maybe some quick work to address it, mm-hmm. but you might need more guidance to actually solve it, right? That's the kind of stuff that they are looking into as well. The idea like, well, these apps may be able to help some, uh, help in certain mission parameters while mission control is working for a more permanent solution. Sure. Um, it's clippy for space exploration. Yeah. I see that you're trying to establish a Martian colony. <laughs> Would you like some help? <laughs> uh, the commander of this mission is going to be Luca Parmitano, who is an astronaut who has spent 166 days aboard the International Space Station. So 14 aboard the Aquarius should be pretty much easy. Pickens should be simple. Walk, yeah. A walk in the ocean park. Um, and recent NEMO missions have also explored tools and techniques for astronauts who are attempting a landing on an asteroid. This one was really cool, the idea being that uh, they use very little weight because they wanted to try and, and – um, uh, simulate a, a microgravity environment as close as possible. Uh-huh. And it involved them planting kind of like sort of like harpoons or anchor points with ropes attached to them and creating pathways that way so that they would be able to to maneuver from one part of an asteroid to another. Uh, so if they wanted to do something like take a specific sample from a particular part of the asteroid, well, obviously they're going to need to figure out a way of 
maneuvering around there. How do you how do you get from one point to the other in a microgravity environment? That's what that test was all about. Yeah. So when we get to the point when we're ready to do that, because of the uh, the the procedures established through the Nemo project, we'll have a better idea how to do that in a in a way that ensure success as closely as we possibly can. Uh, and that's really exciting. Uh, and that, those videos I talked about earlier, uh, they were from Nemo 19. Uh, uh, Andreas Morgensen, or Mogensen, I guess I should say, shot a series of videos while he was uh, aboard the Aquarius. And they are great. He's he's enthusiastic. Um, he's funny. And he is... Uh, just really genuine and showing what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing. He's even self-deprecating because he talks about how uh, people think of astronauts as scientists. He's like, really, we're lab technicians. The, scient- <laughs> the scientists are back home and we're just the hands that do what the scientists want us to do. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, We're the people the scientists have deemed expendable. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're Bruce Willis. And uh, yeah, it's but it's really those videos. I cannot recommend them highly enough. They are really great. A great window into the training program, not even training, the simulation program. Um, and in fact, there are some people who say that you shouldn't even call them simulations, just call them missions, because mm-hmm. they so closely mirror what is going on in space missions that to call them otherwise is disingenuous, which is pretty interesting to me. Well, I think this is really cool. I had no idea about this program before we looked into it. Yeah, it was one of those things that had popped up in my, my news feed about how this was coming up on the 20th mission. And I thought, well, what the heck is that? And when I looked into it, I'm like, well, that makes sense, but I had never really heard of it before. And uh, so I really wanted to go into more detail. And this is the sort of stuff that I find really inspiring, the idea of how can we as human beings engineer a situation to mimic something inherently dangerous, so dangerous and so expensive and so difficult to do that there's not an easy way of testing that stuff, right, yeah. to make sure it's going to work. And I thought it was a very elegant way of doing it. Yeah, until you can just put yourself into the matrix, the matrix for space. Yeah. This is about this is the about, best you can come up with. as close as we can get to. Uh, so, yeah, really interesting. Of course, obviously, if you are you know, t- turning in at night aboard the Aquarius, you're not dealing with microgravity anymore. You are, you know, in a two-and-a-half atmosphere environment <laughs> and just so laying on a bunk. You can lay horizontal. You don't have to strap yourself into the right, sleep sack. Right. Also, use, use of the toilet is slightly less complicated than it is in <laughs> space. Uh, I'll, I will say that the Nemo 19 crew, uh, one of them was from France, and he brought along with him French space food. So they were able to eat uh, – because most of the food they had was like camping food. They, they have There's a microwave on board. That's it for the cooking. <laughs> there's microwave and then there's hot water. Those are your two options if you want to cook something. So they ended up bringing uh, these cans of French space food. It was actually in cans with pull tabs. Um, and they had to heat it using hot water. And so I was curious. I was like, I wonder what French space food is like. Quail. <laughs> <laughs> There was quail. There was salmon. Uh, there was some, some pureed some vegetables. Duck, li- duck liver pate. I, I can't remember what the dessert was, uh, but it was very, it was, it was quintessentially French, and it was quite amusing to me. Anyway, those videos are all on YouTube. You can find those if you search for uh, Nemo nineteen. They'll pop up, and uh, I do highly recommend them. There's also he also recorded 
uh, video logs of his uh, training process before going aboard the Aquarius. So it's all there. It's very good to, you know, check it out if you get a chance. And if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, you should write us. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Twitter, Google Plus, or Facebook at Twitter and Google Plus. We are FW Thinking at Facebook. Just search FW Thinking and the search bar will pop right up. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You deserve to treat yourself. So turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. All inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never ending fun. So booking an all inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals at Ryu Hotels and Resorts in Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central America, and enjoy a selection of exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Turn on Easy Mode at AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started.